Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is the latest chapter of our ongoing series about famous people during times of war or Star Wars. There are many, many, many many stories we could tell about the groundbreaking multi-hyphenate comedy pioneer Charlie Chaplin, whose career was grounded by the silent comedies he made in the teens and 1920s, but extended well into the sound era as well. He was a man who spent his early years in a Dickensian workhouse, reached the highest heights of Hollywood fame, and then died in exile in a Swiss mansion. He was a notorious sucker for pretty teenage girls, And he also stayed with his final wife for over 30 years. Hopefully, someday, we'll get around to telling all of Charlie Chaplin's stories. But in keeping with our current series, today we're going to focus on Chaplin's experiences during and his engagement with World War II. It's a story that breaks down into two parts. There is the left-leaning, pacifist, and ultimately humanist political engagement that compelled Chaplin to take on Adolf Hitler in his most controversial and eventually most successful film, The Great Dictator. And then there's the fallout of Chaplin's naked ambition to help change the world, the scandals and legal problems which Chaplin left himself open to 
thanks to his notoriously bad taste in women, but which were, as we now know, fully orchestrated by none other than J. Edgar Hoover. Join us, won't you, for the rise and fall of Charlie Chaplin during World War II. The case has been made that Charlie Chaplin and Adolf Hitler were dark twins of a sort, fated to be adversaries thanks to all they had in common as much as their very striking differences. They were born four days apart in April 1889. Both had sickly mothers, who they loved, and fathers they despised. Both were self-made men who grew up disadvantaged and undereducated, and both would come to wield enormous power over their respective audiences. Both found an identity in opposing establishments, and both attracted enemies determined to see their downfall. Around the time that Chaplin was debuting his Little Tramp character in the 1914 comedy short film Kid Auto Races in Venice, Hitler was living as a real-life tramp. Having failed to make it as an artist, he had sunk into homelessness, and in fact, it was in a Jewish charity home in Vienna that Hitler was first exposed to Aryan racism. Two years later, Chaplin would be the highest-paid performer in Hollywood, and Hitler would have found new purpose in the German army. A self-described pacifist, Chaplin stayed home from World War I, much to the chagrin of many fans, whose angry letters motivated the actor to register for the selective service. But the little tramp was too little. He was under height and underweight for active service, so he stayed in America and kept busy leading rousing war bond rallies and co-founding the United Artists Company with D.W. Griffith, Douglas Fairbanks, and Mary Pickford. Chaplin's comedic films were essential morale boosters during this period, particularly Shoulder Arms, a 1918 comedy featuring the little tramp doing what Chaplin couldn't, fighting on the Western Front. The FBI opened a file on Charlie Chaplin in 1922. The instigating event seems to have been a Hollywood dinner party, which Chaplin hosted in honor of Marxist labor activist William Z. Foster. The Bureau soon declared that Chaplin was a subversive agent using film as a propaganda tool to encourage a labor revolution. But for years, J. Edgar Hoover and his boys couldn't amass enough evidence against Chaplin to do anything to quash the threat that they were sure he posed to the American way of life. What they were able to make note of was that Chaplin was part of both Hollywood's liberal elite, alongside other performers such as Orson Welles and Melvin Douglas, and also a comrade, so to speak, of lefty intellectuals and artists such as painter Diego Rivera and writer Upton Sinclair, whose expose of the meat industry, The Jungle, had helped transform Chaplin's political consciousness. And it should have been clear to everyone that part of Chaplin's popularity stemmed from the ability of his little tramp character to challenge established conventions while playing the innocent. Chaplin's movies frequently mocked the powerful and the institutions that exploited and threatened everyday Americans. 
As early as the early 1920s, he was using films like The Kid, which dramatized some of his own childhood, to depict both the humiliating situations poor people were forced into and the humanity that helped them get through. He sketched the broad divide between rich and poor in his first drama, 1925's A Woman in Paris, and took the relations between classes further into the realm of satire in his first film made after the advent of sound, City Lights. Once silent films were phased out completely, Chaplin chose his projects carefully and took his time with them. His next film, Modern Times, arguably his greatest masterpiece, skewered the dehumanizing nature of capitalism and consumerism. Hitler would eventually ban Modern Times on the grounds that it, quote, inclined toward Bolshevism, a review with which J. Edgar Hoover would have been inclined to agree. Hitler, who had been born in Austria, felt more connected to Germany, and so he joined the German army at the start of the Great War. A gas attack landed him in the hospital, and when he woke up, the war was over. Hitler didn't know what to do with himself, so he went to Berlin, and he joined the already existent Nazi party. In 1923, he led a mob in effort to overthrow the Bavarian government. Hitler was thrown in jail, where he wrote his toxic manifesto, Mein Kampf. Pardoned and released a year later, Hitler found that Germany was descending into anarchy. There was a power vacuum that needed a strong leader to fill it, and Hitler stepped up, lobbying the people to his cause with forceful speeches. These speeches were disseminated worldwide via newsreels, which played in every movie theater before the feature. Charlie Chaplin was something of a newsreel addict. There was a movie theater on Hollywood Boulevard that only showed the news shorts that usually played before fiction films in other theaters, and Charlie would sit there for hours. When he first saw Adolf Hitler, Chaplin would later say, half-jokingly, that he thought the leader was copying him, or at least the little tramp's mustache, in hopes of capitalizing on the comedian's popularity. With his exaggerated gestures and pompous seriousness, Hitler was, to Chaplin, totally hilarious, and also something of a performative genius. Throughout the 1930s, comparisons between the two men were frequently made, often by political cartoonists, and the effect may have been to diminish the seriousness with which the world at large treated Hitler, Perhaps one of the reasons why he was initially underestimated as a genocidal maniac was that he reminded a lot of people of a live-action cartoon. There was one thing that the Nazis and the Jews they persecuted had in common. Both believed that Charlie Chaplin was secretly Jewish. These rumors were present virtually from the beginning of his career, but they were given apparent credibility thanks to news reports dating at least as far back as the early 1930s, which claimed that Chaplin's real name was Israel Thonstein. In the FBI's file on Chaplin, his supposed potentially subversive Semitism was a frequent topic of investigation. The Jewish people were proud to have Chaplin as one of their own. The Nazis thought it was a big problem for their cause, given that Chaplin was one of the most beloved movie stars in the world. In the early 1930s, a Nazi propaganda book called The Jews Are Looking At You 
included an entry on Chaplin in which he was characterized as, quote, a disgusting Jewish acrobat. When Hitler came to power in 1933, almost no one in Hollywood was inspired to, or felt at liberty to, openly critique him. Though most studio moguls were Jewish, they were also of Eastern European descent, and many had family members still on the continent. They were afraid that doing anything explicitly anti-Nazi could anger Hitler to the point that he'd make life even worse for the Jews in Germany. To which Chaplin responded, How much worse can it get? In 1938, when Chaplin first announced that he was planning to make a film which was then called The Dictator, it seemed like an extremely dangerous thing to do, to mine comedy from a critique of an increasingly powerful world leader. Even after Hitler invaded Poland, the U.S. wasn't at war with him, and neither was Britain, and the latter was geographically close enough to Germany to have legitimate worry about getting on the Fuhrer's bad side— And so studio executives both in the U.S. and in England warned Chaplin that his film could be banned if he went through with making it. In 1939, the many Europeans settled in Hollywood didn't want to believe there was another European war pending, and many Americans didn't want any part of it. High-profile Americans such as Charles Lindbergh, Henry Ford, and Lillian Gish campaigned in favor of isolation— On the one hand, the so-called Great War had been so costly, decimating generations of young men on both sides, and no one wanted to get into a sequel. On the other hand, Lindbergh and a lot of his followers were pretty openly racist. And even to those Americans who weren't openly anti-Semitic, at this point, no one had any idea how far Hitler would go to advance his Aryan agenda— So it was hard to advance the argument that he had to be stopped before he killed millions of innocent people. Working at what was now his typical snail's pace, Chaplin spent $500,000, or about $8.5 million in today's money, on The Great Dictator's pre-production, before filming had even started. When Hitler invaded Poland in September 1939, Chaplin took a breather to decide whether or not he really wanted to move forward. Was the Hitler who seemed hell-bent on world domination by the most appalling means necessary really someone to laugh at? While The Great Dictator was gestating, Warner Brothers released the first blatantly anti-Hitler Hollywood film called Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Based on a real Nazi spy ring in the U.S., the infiltration of which by the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover himself had apparently given the studio encouragement to dramatize, Jack Warner had defiantly released the film in spite of warnings and complaints from the Germans and other studio chiefs who were still releasing their movies in all European markets and thought it was bad for business to take a stance on such hot potato world affairs. But Jack Warner didn't care. His studio was already closed for business in Germany after an incident in which Warner's Berlin representative was fatally beaten in the street by Nazi thugs. The same Hollywood power brokers who couldn't dissuade Jack Warner 
also tried to talk Chaplin out of making his cinematic statement against the Nazi state. But as Chaplin's former assistant would remember later, a higher authority kept Chaplin on track. They were, they were saying, this is a disaster, Charlie, you know, not just for the Jews, but for the American foreign policy and so forth. Charlie was beginning to get kind of scared. Roosevelt got word of this, and he sent Harry Hopkins out to talk to Charlie. And Hopkins said, look, Charlie, the president is all for this. Uh, he said, you don't have to worry about their boycotting release. He'll see that it's released. He feels that this is a very important thing and that you must go ahead and not listen to any of these people who are trying to discourage you. In The Great Dictator, Chaplin would play two roles. The film begins during the First World War and shows Chaplin as a Jewish barber turned soldier who ends up saving the life of a high-ranking officer named Schultz. Cut to 20 years later. While Chaplin's barber has been in a hospital with amnesia, an upstart dictator named Adenoid Hinkle, who looks just like the Jewish barber but who has an absolute intolerance for racial difference, has taken over the country with dreams of taking over the world. The barber wanders out of the hospital and back to his barber shop, which is smack in the middle of a neighborhood which has been cordoned off as a Jewish ghetto, patrolled by crude stormtroopers. Though the barber is recognized and given special treatment by Schultz, soon the officer is on the outs with Hinkle himself for protesting the dictator's obsessive persecution of Jews. Schultz goes on the run, ends up hiding in the ghetto with Hinkle and his new love, Hannah, played by Chaplin's then-wife, Paulette Goddard. Found by stormtroopers, the barber and Schultz are sent to a concentration camp. They escape in stolen uniforms, and once they're out, the barber in his Nazi uniform is mistaken for Hinkle and asked to give a speech. You must speak. I can't. You must. It's our only hope. Apparently unsure exactly how to best say what he wanted to say, Chaplin kept shooting new endings for the film. He worked so slowly that he was still editing as first France, and then Denmark fell to the Nazis. Chaplin felt a new urgency. It wasn't enough to satirize Hitler. He wanted the great dictator to help shorten the war. He wrote a heartfelt speech, which he would deliver to camera, not in character, but as himself. Though couched within the film's plot, in which Chaplin's Jewish barber character has been mistaken for the Hitler-esque dictator and has been asked to address his people, it was really Chaplin's address to the people of the world, and particularly America, including Hollywood, who had not yet been moved to join the fight against Hitler's totalitarianism. I'm sorry. But I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich 
and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie, they do not fulfill that promise, they never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Chaplin was over 450 days into a grueling production by the time he was ready to film this final speech. Home movies taken on the set of the film show Chaplin in between takes, verbally abusing a crew member whilst in costume as the dictator. In interviews, Chaplin would admit, good-humoredly, that just wearing the Nazi-style uniform had an effect on his personality. In reality, his directorial style had always tended to be, for lack of a better word, dictatorial, but his quest for perfection on this film in particular had eroded Chaplin's patience for other people's mistakes completely. While some reports suggest Chaplin and Paulette Goddard had already separated by the time the great dictator finally went before cameras, 
Other reports say it was Chaplin's unforgiving treatment of his actress-slash-wife on sets that moved her to file for divorce in 1942. Chaplin always tried to work under a shroud of secrecy, but he was particularly keen to keep the particulars of The Great Dictator under wraps, given that the mere fact of its production had attracted death threats. And in mid-1940, all indications suggested the time was not quite right for a comedy about the coming war. In May 1940, Hedda Hopper sniffed, No one feels like laughing at any dictator. A month later, in a truly frightening column implying that an on-the-warpath Hitler deserved respect from Hollywood studios, syndicated columnist Jimmy Fiddler noted that some studios had quote-unquote foolishly greenlit anti-Nazi films, and he predicted that Uncle Sam would soon quote, crack down on American distribution of any films objectionable to Hitler. Certainly the stakes were high for Chaplin and the odds were stacked against him. He had spent over $2 million of his own money to finance the film, and he was all but assured before it was even finished that there would be some markets in which it would be banned from exhibition. It's been well documented that all of the Hollywood studios were cautious about criticizing Hitler, in part because the production code through which the studios censored themselves forbade attacks on foreign governments and partially because the studios wanted to continue to sell their movies in territories that Hitler and his fascist cronies controlled. But it's also worth noting that films with a blatant anti-Nazi or Jewish sympathetic stance could have offended plenty of people in the United States, too. There was an American Nazi party, open only to Americans of German descent, and it was large enough to have thrown a rally at Madison Square Garden in 1939. And you didn't have to be a Nazi to be anti-Semitic. Jews were widely discriminated against all over the country, including in Washington and even in Hollywood, where country clubs and other elite social institutions were segregated by religion as well as race. Many reviews of The Great Dictator reflected a certain reticence, with top critics like the New York Times' Bosley Crowther and John Mosher at The New Yorker admitting that they weren't sure whether or not it was okay to laugh about the targets of Chaplin's satire. Others jeered the film's ninth-inning turn into self-serious speechifying. Hedging bets, the LA Times reported that after the film's New York premiere, quote, "...one and all unite in calling it a great film, but it was not quite what they expected and they found it disconcerting." Just over a decade after the transition from silent to sound film, American audiences had seen nothing like The Great Dictator, particularly not from a performer best known as a silent comedian, and they definitely weren't used to a comedy that asked them to think about the problems of the world rather than give them a route to escape them. For all of these reasons, it would have made sense if The Great Dictator had been a huge flop. Instead, it was a massive hit. Without being able to rely on box office totals from much of Europe or South America, Dictator became Chaplin's most profitable film by a wide margin. It was perhaps helped at the box office by co-star Paulette Godard, who starred in several other hit films in the year leading up to the release of Dictator, including George Cukor's The Women and The Ghost Breakers, Godard's second pairing with Bob Hope, which opened to big business in July. But also, it was the right film at the right time, 
By the time The Great Dictator opened in late 1940, the temperature of the nation had changed just enough. The war now seemed right. And it was nearly impossible to cheer on the mistreatment of outsiders, something the great dictator depicted with great empathy for the powerless. By the time Chaplin delivered the film's final speech in a live radio broadcast to celebrate FDR's third inauguration in January 1941, The Great Dictator had become more than a hit movie. It was almost a political event in itself, and it seemed to be pointing Chaplin towards a political career. But... J. Edgar Hoover had other ideas. Charlie Chaplin once said, I must find a woman who understands that creative art absorbs every bit of a man. When I am working, I withdraw absolutely from those I love. I have no energy, no love to give them. Perhaps this is why Chaplin tended to be drawn to very, very young women who weren't accustomed to making demands on a man's time. His first wife, Mildred Harris, was, at age 18, 11 years Chaplin's junior when they met. His second wife, Lita Gray, was 16 at the time of marriage, by which point Chaplin had known her for 10 years. His third wife, Paulette Goddard, was a comparative senior citizen, 21 years old when she met Chaplin aboard the yacht of Joe Shank, future Fox exec and lover of a young Marilyn Monroe. By the time she met Chaplin, Paulette had already worked as an actress, model, and Ziegfeld girl, and she had already been married and divorced. She was under contract to Hal Roach and had appeared in a couple of Laurel and Hardy movies. Charlie and Paulette were immediately infatuated with one another, and Chaplin soon bought out her contract and cast Paulette in his next film, Modern Times, which was released in 1936. The same year, Chaplin and Goddard were married on a boat in Shanghai. Chaplin had seemingly never had a successful long-term relationship to this point, but his problems with Paulette were different than the problems in his two previous marriages, which had been to two very young women who had needy, meddling families in tow. If anything, Paulette Goddard was too independent. She wanted a life, and particularly a career, separate from Chaplin. Charlie was allegedly particularly embarrassed by his wife's fervent push for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, and the couple's battles over this weakened their marriage. There were reports that Goddard missed out on the part of Scarlett because of the rumors that her Chinese wedding to Chaplin wasn't legally binding, and whether this was true or not, it must have fostered resentment on both sides. And it turned out their marriage was legal enough that Goddard had to go to Mexico to officially end it in 1942. Unencumbered by a wife and more famous than ever in the aftermath of The Great Dictator, Chaplin rode a wave of interest in his talents as a political orator. He started coming out in fervent favor of the Soviet Union, which was soon to be the U.S.'s official ally in the war, but at this point, to many Americans, represented an ideological or actual evil on par with Nazi Germany. At a rally in San Francisco in May 1942, Chaplin spoke in favor of the Western Allies supporting the Soviets by opening up a second front in the war. Chaplin greeted the attendees of the rally as comrades and then clarified, I am not a communist, he said. I am a human being. This was duly noted by the feds, who of course had been trying to nail Chaplin for his supposed subversive leftism for over 20 years. 
Chaplin was soon thereafter asked to speak at Carnegie Hall, and Jack Warner, of all people, perhaps the most liberal of all of the studio moguls, warned Chaplin not to go. Chaplin took this warning as a challenge and gave the speech. But he started to suspect that his activism was working against him, at least in terms of his social popularity, which seemed to wither away around this time in direct correspondence to his increased demand as a pro-Soviet speaker. Whatever was going on, he was starting to become pretty lonely. Maybe this was why when, in New York in October 1942, Chaplin agreed to meet with Joan Barry, a young woman whom Chaplin had dated after his breakup with Goddard. Chaplin initially saw enough in Barry to pay for her acting classes and discuss featuring her in a film, but he quickly froze her out. Joan Barry, from all reports I've found, frankly, sounds totally nuts. And worse, she was willing to use her crazy pants tendencies to aid the government in their surveillance on Chaplin. In the months preceding their New York meeting, after Chaplin had stopped taking her calls, Barry had smashed the windows of Chaplin's mansion and then extorted Chaplin for $5,000 and two train tickets to New York in exchange for her promise to leave him alone. But now Barry was back. And when she and Chaplin met, she begged him for $300. She then used that money to follow Chaplin back to Hollywood. When he wouldn't take her calls there, Barry got a gun and broke into Chaplin's house. She held him hostage at gunpoint for an hour and a half, and then the two had sex and slept in separate bedrooms. In the morning, Chaplin gave Barry some money and she agreed to go away. But she kept coming back and Chaplin decided to finally get the police involved. Barry was arrested, and then she found out she was pregnant. And when Chaplin refused to support the child, she brought a paternity suit against him. This suit came down in mid-1943, by which point Chaplin was a newlywed. In 1942, he had begun seeing Una O'Neill, the then 17-year-old daughter of playwright Eugene O'Neill. Orson Welles, a close friend of Chaplin's, had read the teenager's palm before she and Charlie met and predicted that she would be married to the little tramp in no time. In fact, the marriage took place in June 1943 and lasted until Chaplin's death. The pair had eight children together. Una was to stand by Charlie through a decade's worth of legal problems, some of which you could say he brought on himself, but most of which likely would have been easily shrugged off if not for the vendetta of J. Edgar Hoover. Chaplin's FBI file, which would swell to over 2,000 pages by the time Chaplin died in 1977, shows a concerted effort to use Joan Barry to take Chaplin down. In February 1944, while results of blood tests to determine Chaplin's relationship to Barry's child were still pending, Chaplin was indicted on violating the Mann Act, an outdated anti-prostitution statute designed to prevent pimps from transporting women across state lines. The indictment claimed Chaplin had violated the act by buying Barry a train ticket to New York and then meeting her there. Within days of the indictment, the blood tests came back negative. Chaplin could not have been the father of Barry's baby. But that wasn't an issue in the indictment. 
So Chaplin hired Jerry Geisler of Errol Flynn rape trial acquittal fame, and Geisler did what Geisler did best, convinced the jury that his client was innocent because the so-called victim was guilty of being easy. In this case, it was fairly evident that the charges themselves were a sham, and even though Barry and even some of Chaplin's own servants were working for the FBI, and a judge who had known Barry socially had been installed to preside over the case, Chaplin was acquitted of the Mann Act violation. But that judge, whose association with Barry was noted in FBI documents, decided that since blood tests were inadmissible as evidence, Barry's paternity suit should be allowed to go through. The first trial ended as a mistrial. In the second trial, Chaplin was forced to support Barry's daughter until she reached the age of 21. If Hoover had been hoping to not just teach Chaplin an expensive lesson, but to get rid of him, to have him imprisoned, or better yet, deported, then he failed, at least for the moment. But he'd get another chance. The goodwill Chaplin had earned in the film industry and with the American public thanks to The Great Dictator had been seriously eroded by his subsequent scandals, and his enemies were able to use his flagging popularity as an aid to accomplish in 1952 what they couldn't make happen in 1944. But that is a story for another day. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. If you like the podcast, please tell everyone you can any way you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. You can rate and review us on iTunes or subscribe to us in any podcatcher of your choice. And you can contribute to our forum, where you can suggest podcast episode ideas, ask questions, and chat with your fellow listeners. You'll find it at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. About the baddest girl I ever seen. Straight up out of movie scene. Who knew she was a drama queen?